As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. I'm Hugh Wisencroft. Today, Marcus Rashford is the name on everybody's lips. We'll ask what makes him so special. Frank Lampard thinks he's being treated unfairly. You guessed it, because he's English. And Rick Parry, the EFL chairman, claims clubs are being victimised. Does it deserve a government bailout? To help me through it all, a pair of highly regarded and endlessly talented sports journalists from The Times, uh, Jonathan Northcroft and Tom Roddy. I wondered who was joining us then. <laughs> <laughs> me too. <laughs> uh, gentlemen, oh, well, you're both very talented, Tom, especially you. You know, Jonathan gets enough praise by, you know, people in journalism, X, Y and Z. But it's all about you today. Um, it's all about Marcus Rashford, in fact, I tell a lie. Let's reflect on his first Manchester United hat-trick uh, last night, they beat RB Leipzig, Manchester United by five goals to nil. Lots of praise for Oli Gunnar Solskjaer as well today. What did you make of Marcus Rashford's performance, Tom? Uh, well, it's the impact, isn't it, that he has. It's the impact that he can have on, on a game. Um, and and I, I think it, it kind of rounded off the perfect performance for Solskjaer in general, that you, you kind of saw him revert back to to a, a system rather than relying on players, which which I think was re- really uh, key for them. And in a week when he's sort of outsmarted both Thomas Tuchel and now Nagelsmann as well. Um, and after, after what Marcus Rashford's done off the field, to see that that hasn't been a distraction, because that would be the, the kind of obvious accusation we'd see, was, was, was great. Um, and, and I think the, the big thing with him is his, his finishing, how much that has improved. I think there was a period where it wasn't certain when he went through on goal that he would score and, and he was just absolutely clinical last night. And it's not easy to come into those games either. And and we all heard the hype of Upa Meccano before the game uh, and how highly regarded he is. And, and Rashford made him look mediocre. Uh, there is a, a, a part of me that thinks a slight change in the formation, no front three, it was a front two last night meant Marcus Rashford was picking up the ball in a central area. In fact, Mason Greenwood was as well. And maybe that's the key to getting the best out of those two, because, of course, it's a lot easier to score a goal down the middle of the pitch than it is coming in from out wide. Uh, Jonathan, another tactical masterclass class from Oli Gunnar Solskjaer. Uh, listen, you can you can reel off some of the things you've said before. Go on, the floor's yours. No, so I'm not going to bore everyone by um, <laughs> sort of uh, garlanding Solskjaer's majesty yet again. But I mean, you know, it was, it was further proof that this guy's not a dunce. He's, 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 a, he's a decent manager. He's doing a good job at United, I think. But I just to go back to the system, I agree with you, Hugh. I think um, it really suits the personnel United have got this slightly madly put together 
squad with too many creative midfielders and and a lot of kind of wide strikers but no real number nine I actually think that diamond with two forwards but not playing right through the middle not playing as wingers either but playing kind of almost as inside um forwards or inside strikers I think that I think that suits United I think Oli might have found something last night um because you don't want Rashford out on the the flank but he's not entirely comfortable right in the middle where when you play number nine I think the big issue for him is that as a number nine you've got to play with your back to goal a lot and he doesn't want to do that Martial doesn't want to do that Greenwood doesn't want to do that but if you can play them slightly wider and have somebody at the top of the diamond coming through the middle like Firmino does for Liverpool I think that works and I quite like Van der Beek in that role and then of course when he went off Bruno Fernandes actually came on with something to prove and was, was was fantastic. So I just wonder if that's where United go going forward. Um, it certainly suited Rashford and the, the, the finishing, as Tom said, was was up a notch from you know a kid that, 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 that used to be a bit variable going through on goal, but he's really worked on that part. And if you can get him in those positions, he can, he can, he can score a lot of goals and Greenwood can. I mean, his finishing is ludicrous. It made me think back to um, to something Antonio Conte said famously when he when he came in and he he compared himself to being a tailor trying to find the right system and of course at Chelsea he had that three at the back and the wing backs and it just perfectly suited Chelsea uh, as as Johnny said that that system last night felt like. Uh, one that that really suited United and the players that they've got, because at the moment, or for, for quite a few years, you see trends, don't you, in football? And so many teams are trying to play four three three at the moment because it worked so beautifully for for Liverpool. Um, but it, the important thing is to make make sure your 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 system suits your players. I think you're absolutely right. I think if you look at the diamond. Let's take the diamond, for example. At the base, you could play Matic, you could play Fred, you could play McTominay. Then the, the three in front of those, you know, Pogba has had issues playing as a as a deeper holding midfielder. And so he gets extra support because there'll be someone behind him and beside him. And then you've got the possibility of playing McTominay there. You could play Fred further forward if you needed to. You could play Van der Beek and Fernandez in those two deeper roles in the middle at the heart of the diamond, if you like. And then in the number 10 role, you've also got options because Fernandez, Van der Beek and Pogba could play further forward as well. So it gives their central midfield area a, a massive amount of rotation. And I think he might get more comfort as well from the players, from Bruno Fernandez, from Paul Pogba in particular, and from a Van der Beek in a number 10 role. He could even play Mata there, for example, Lingard, if he wanted to as well. And then the front two, as, as you mentioned already, Johnny, Martial might be happier with a partner in the middle. Rashford certainly will. Mason Greenwood's a youngster. Someone alongside him will help. I mean, it, just you bringing it up makes me feel much more excited about Manchester United than a 4-3-3. They beat... Um, I'm trying to think which game, if whether it was a cup or the league, but they had a good victory against Man City, um, I think, last season. And it was it was Rashford and Martial playing in exactly those roles. I think Fred and McTominay played, and I think it might be Matt at the tip of the diamond, but it worked in that game. And I was surprised he didn't go back to that. And, and I don't know if the front three has been a product of trying to do what Liverpool have done or trying to do what City have done. But in that, you know, if you're going to play a front three, you, you, you really, well, you need someone to play through the middle. And I think that's been United's 
And that's been United's big issue. Playing not having a not having a if they'd got Haaland, let's say, Erling Haaland, they could have played a front three, him through the middle as a number nine. Um without that player, this might be the one. This might be the one that they can use. We're going to talk about United a little bit later on. We'll look ahead to their game in the Premier League against Arsenal at Old Trafford. Big one coming up. Another big game for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. But a bit of trivia for you both. Only the second Manchester United player to score a hat-trick as a substitute last night, Marcus Rashford. Who was the first, though? The manager. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Go on, Jonathan. No, I'm old enough to remember that game, that four goals he scored against Forrest, I think in about 11 minutes. And he actually walked off the pitch with a scowl on his face because uh, he just he didn't really like being a substitute, Ole. And, and, and I think he maybe he knew that that was just going to, you know, cement that super sub reputation. But uh, yeah, mm-hmm. that, yeah, I remember that one. He now often reflects on it while trying to justify using Van der Beek as a sub last week. Suddenly being a, a super sub was the best part of his career. Listen, he's got that managerial knack, hasn't he, to use statistics and facts when he wants to. Um, look, just quickly on Marcus Rashford. Earlier on, I spoke to the Times chief football writer, Henry Winter, about the impact that the future prime minister, let's be frank, Marcus Rashford is having at the moment, not just on the pitch, but off it as well. So, Henry, Marcus Rashford, scintillating form last night off the bench, only played 27 minutes, but walks away uh, with the match ball. But it isn't just what he's doing on the pitch. He is captivating the nation off it with all of the work that he's doing and helping to provide free school meals. Have you seen, can you remember a player having that sort of transcendental impact in terms of an English player? I can't. And I think I might struggle to to find a sportsman or woman, certainly in recent memories, who's had such an extraordinary impact on the political process in terms of, you know, he's running rings around Upamecano last night, just as been running rings around Boris Johnson and Matt Hancock, people like that over the past sort of two, three months. And what I like about it, and this is reflected with his work on the pitch as well as off the pitch, he's done it with a certain dignity. He hasn't taunted the opponents. When uh, Tory politicians, when they failed to reverse the decision on uh, uh, free school meals during the holidays, um, he, he called on his followers to just leave off some of the, the abuse uh, that uh, the politicians were getting. So I think he's handled it incredibly well with a lot of dignity. And having spoken to, to people in government, they initially thought they'd, they'd see him off, as probably Upa Meccano did last night, as PSG's defenders. But this is a very tough I mean, you've met Marcus, I and mean, I've spent time with him, I and mean, he's a tough individual. If you've met his mother and no, I've I've spent a little bit of time with her, just sort of talking to her, and she, she's a remarkable lady. And her qualities, her character, her resilience, which she needed, bringing up three children, working three jobs, crying herself to sleep at night. Because Marcus could hear this in the in the next room, he heard his mother crying herself to sleep because she didn't know how she was going to make ends meet and bring these three children up, even though she was working three jobs and doing everything for them. And I think that quality, that resilience, that character shines through with Marcus and his brothers, uh, Dwayne and Dane. And that they are a remarkable family. I mean, I've been lucky to sort of see them close up with they're all working and they're so passionate about this because, you know, this is not, this is not a fad. This is not something they've taken on as maybe one or two footballers have done in the past. This is right to the core of Marcus. You You listen to him and he can remember, you know, queuing at a soup kitchen 
He can remember relying on food banks. He can remember relying on neighbours for food, coaches for food, and as, as well as sort of footballing sustenance. So he's this comes from the heart with Marcus Rashford. But what the politicians didn't realise is that this also comes from the head. And when I spoke to him at the start of lockdown, he was reading books on distribution, how you get. He said, the first thing I've got to do is go out and buy vans, go out and buy lorries, go out and buy trucks, working with Fair Shoe UK, this amazing charity, which sort of helps hundreds of thousands of hungry people in this country. But he looked at the logistical side of it as well as the emotional. You know, it's the right thing to do, obviously, but then how do you do that? And so obviously he made a financial contribution, but it's his platform, it's his energy, it's his dignity and intelligence that's been driving this with his family. It is a special thing to see. And I think what you're referring to is just how authentic he is in what he says and what he's trying to do. That has reached so many people, but there are still detractors for, for Marcus Rashford, for, for whatever reason, can you put your finger on why people might try and detract from what he's doing? I think there's an element, certainly with some people, whether it's racism, whether it's snobbery, whether it's this, I think probably being ultimately absolutely bemused that a working class kid from Withenshaw with little education, but with street smarts can run rings around, you know, a, uh, a very well educated prime minister. I mean, I've spoken to people around the prime minister. They just, he just doesn't get it. He's just being naive when he thought, well, it's just a football. I'll be able to, to see him off. You know, football's not a proper sport anyway. He's, he's a rugby man. So the naivety of the people in power, this shouldn't be a political thing. This is the great thing about Marcus Rashford. He says, this should not be about politics. This should be about humanity. And that is the key thing. You can have sort of arguments about where the money goes to and all that. But ultimately, Marcus is... Marcus has actually shone a light through this and said no child in a wealthy 21st century society should go to bed hungry. They are the victims. They're the innocents. I'm going to provide the platform to fight for them. And I, I just think it's it's fantastic. But coming back to your point, I mean, there's some people who rather snootily say, oh, stick to football. And there are one or two football fans who have said that and they think, well, you should be focusing on doing your best for Manchester United. Well, look what he's done. Look what he's done as this campaign has absolutely intensified, as he's rallied the country and almost this Dunkirk spirit of, uh, of Mrs. Miggins's tea shop in, in York, suddenly providing you know, hundreds of uh, packed lunches for local kids. You know, restaurants and cafes and community schemes all over the country rallying football clubs, rallying to provide uh, food for, for, you know, for the hungry. I mean, it is crazy. I mean, listen, listen to this. The fact that people are hungry in a 21st century with all this wealth that we have, you know, particularly at this time, it's actually it's a national scandal. And thank heavens that Marcus Rashford has come along and um, and just addressed it. And I'm sure the politicians eventually will see sense. They first, it's an absolute PR disaster for them. So many people are turning against it. People with their own um, in their own party you know, at a constituency level as well as at uh, Central House are sort of turning against them. So, and when you get 2,000 paediatricians saying to government, actually, Marcus Rashford is right, you've got to do something, then eventually they will turn and it will be perceived as a U-turn and, 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 and rightly so. But, but one thing about Marcus Rashford, he won't gloat. He will just say, good, now we can keep helping these kids who are desperately in need of help.
Absolutely. And a, a fantastic achievement to get over a million people uh, to sign a petition to have this discussed in Parliament as well. Uh, a hat-trick against RB Leipzig last night in the Champions League rounded things off uh, for him as well on the back pages roundly this Thursday morning. Uh, Frank Lampard's Chelsea got a 4-0 win against Krasnodar in Russia in the Champions League as well. But I wanted to ask you about some comments in the lead-up to that match from the Chelsea boss, Frank Lampard. Says he, he feels he's been treated differently because he's, he's English. He says it doesn't matter where you're from all managers should be judged the same. Is there a different perception uh, of Frank Lampard because of his nationality? I think there is a little bit. I mean, this may be sort of reverse of what some people are thinking, but actually the scrutiny on Frank Lampard, I think there's always, there's always been scrutiny on Frank Lampard. I mean, I can remember sort of West Ham supporters meetings when Frank Lampard was a, was a teenager and Harry Redknapp having to defend Frank Lampard, obviously his nephews, his, his place in the team. He had the scrutiny coming into England. Could he play alongside Stephen Gerrard? He had the scrutiny at Chelsea. And he has always driven himself on. I don't know whether Frank Lampard was saying that because it just kind of sort of fosters maybe a little bit of sort of siege mentality, drives him on. I also think that actually when Frank Lampard speaks, I've always found him very honest, very upfront, and he probably feels that. He probably feels that he's on, uh, that there is extra scrutiny of him. But in a way, there should be. First, because he's in a big club. Secondly, because he probably wouldn't have got that position if he hadn't have got that sort of emotional connection um, with Chelsea, fans, legends, and obviously he's got the trust of the owner, Roman Abramovich. Um, so I kind of can see it both ways, but uh, I've, I occasionally hear and read this argument that uh, English managers are scrutinised less than foreign managers and there's almost a, sort of a, a kernel blimp scrutiny on foreign managers. I don't think so. I think over the last sort of 15 years, there's been, because of the quality of foreign managers, there's been a sort of, almost an adverse view of, um, of of English managers. I think Gareth Southgate probably changed that a little bit. I think Stephen Gerrard, his work at Rangers, has done that. Um, and I, you know, Graham Potter, I mean, you know, there, there are other examples of good English managers coming through. But, yeah, I mean, English managers weren't fashionable for a bit. So, uh, you know, and it's up to Frank Lampard to, to change that perception. It's interesting for me. I mean, Lampard disagreed, didn't he, when Raheem Sterling talked about um, black coaches earlier in the year. Lampard disagreeing that he'd been given preferential treatment in getting the Chelsea job. And he mentioned um, Steven Gerrard as well and his opportunity at, at Rangers compared to, of course, what opportunities a, a black manager would have been afforded. Um he claimed his chance at Chelsea was down to hard work, of course, after a year at Derby County. So he's treated unfairly now because he's English, but others aren't treated unfairly because of their race. Do you think this exposed a bit of a blind spot for Frank? I, I know, actually, I can see both sides because I think that, in a way, they're two separate arguments because what Raheem Sterling was saying was completely right. I mean, the late, great Cyril Regis always said this. There was a, there was a glass ceiling for black managers and black coaches, and it's only recently that uh, that's beginning to be smashed through. Uh, but I think the, the Frank Lampard thing, you have to see it's a very sort of microclimate of how he has developed and gone on this accelerated pathway. And it is an accelerated pathway. You have to accept that. Uh, you know, with, uh, with Derby, what did he actually do at Derby? You know, he played some good football, but didn't get them up. And now you look at, he obviously got that, uh, the opportunity at Chelsea through unique circumstances. 
Um, but I think what we're seeing in tandem to that is an opening up, and we've seen the the diversity code that was uh, that was launched this week. Um, but there's got to be more. I mean, thirty three percent of of footballers are black. The next step is for thirty three percent of of managers to be black. Um, I still think there are issues in certain boardrooms with uh, uh, black players becoming black managers, and and they don't want it. And I think so. There still is an element of. I would certainly wouldn't call football institutionally racist, but I think it's, it's absolutely got to open up more. And the work that Paul Elliott and Tyrone Mings did a piece in the, in the Times this week and elsewhere talking about it, I think the pathway is opening up. And I hope that when Raheem Sterling, if he wants to go into management, I think he will find the door would have been open slightly more. But it's slightly difficult to compare it completely with the Frank Lampard situation because it is so unique in that situation. I mean, I know a lot of white English coaches who haven't got jobs. Having said that, they do still have an easier pathway than black managers, and that clearly has to be addressed. It's being addressed at a certain level by the FA with the age group teams with England. You'd look at, I've been on under-21 trips, and I've looked at the whole staff. I remember it was only, what, two years ago? No, last year, out in Rimini, the England under-21s, and I turned to one of the FA officials and I said, you know every one of your backroom members is 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 white and you look at the makeup of the england under 21 uh, you know the 23 players there and it was i think at least a third maybe more black and i just said listen can't you see the sort of the contrast there and they did actually fly out a black a black coach um to you know to 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 help out joining him i think he was planned to come anyway but listen there's there's so many issues with that I am slightly aware of making it sort of personality and saying Frank Lampard's been given this. He has been given an opportunity, but that is if Frank, if Frank Lampard doesn't make it at Chelsea, he won't parachute into a job elsewhere. So I think that's where that element of sort of white privilege does slightly uh, lose its argument. But clearly, there's a there's still a glass ceiling which needs to be smashed through more. Maybe Ashley Cole, who's working his way up through the uh, you know the age group at, at Chelsea, he'll he'll have an impact as well. Um, but you know, it's 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 crazy. It's taken this long. Our thanks to Henry Winter there. So Tom Roddy, do we treat foreign managers with more? I'll say respect, but I don't know. Do we think they've got some sort of added allure? Yeah, I think I think we do as a as a nation. Definitely. I mean, it, it, the the whole subject took me back to Sam Aladici um, and 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 his idea Sam Allardyce's idea that he he would get a bigger job um, at the same time I don't I don't think that's the case I mean you look David Moyes got the United job not so long ago Brendan Rodgers had the Liverpool job um, we were talking about Eddie Howe and Arsenal and and Johnny probably knows more than me about how close that that came but I think British managers have had um, the opportunities. Um, Alison Rudd wrote a r- really interesting piece yesterday about this, um, saying that if if Marcelo Bielsa was known as were Mark Baxter from Swindon and sat on an upturned bucket, then we'd frown on him and look disapproval at him. But because it's Bielsa from Argentina, bucket's fine. Um, I, I think we. I think we. I don't think we. Sc- scrutinise them quite as much. Um, what I do wonder with Lampard's comments is if Chelsea had hired a Spanish manager who had finished second, uh, sixth 
in the Spanish uh, second division the year before being hired and then lost the first game 4-0 to Man United. I think there might have been more scrutiny than there was over Lampard after that first game. Um, I think the interesting thing is, is that Lampard looks at the media um, as, as a useful tool and mechanism to speak to his players and get messages across. I think he's seen it throughout his own career, um, looking at managers who he's worked with. Uh, and he's very good at it. I actually thought this was probably a bit of a misstep and I wondered whether he would have regretted how it's come across. Um, the, the fascinating thing I found from it was that he said a lot of people told me when I got the job, are you sure you want to take it? And I think that was more, that was twofold. It was because it was a manager in his early, a young manager in just his second job. But it's also the Chelsea job. It's it's a it's a job that any manager would have has to ask themselves, would I want to take it? Because we've seen what happened with Carlo Angelotti and Roberto Di Matteo winning trophies and then getting sacked soon afterwards. So I think there's more to it. Not to mention Antonio Conte as well, who had a difficult time. Um, Jonathan, you know, there are some that would look at Frank Lampard's career in management and say he's been quite fortunate, if not privileged. Did You know, I alluded to the fact that there might have been a blind spot here from Frank Lampard. Didn't really know what he was wading into. What do you think? I mean, there's a lot to kind of unpack in Frank's comments. And I think the, the, there's a difference between opportunity and then scrutiny. Um, and I think it's it's self-evident that that being uh, a former England international um, of the stature that, 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 that Frank was or Stephen Gerrard was, I think, I think that has helped these guys get opportunities. Um, but that's a different thing to scrutiny. And I think what Frank's talking about is scrutiny and how you're judged once you're in the job. And that's where I think... If there's a parallel, it might be how English players are treated as, as a whole, England internationals. I think there's a kind of weird relationship with success in this country. Um, and we, if you think about like, I don't know, Frank himself as a player, um, I think was always undervalued actually. If Frank Lampard had been an Italian midfielder scoring 200 odd league goals for midfield, we'd have been absolutely wowed by him. We respected Frank Lampard, but maybe there was an element where... Um, because he wasn't, you know, because he was one of our own, um, we didn't maybe give him quite as much mystique as, as he could have done. Wayne Rooney always got treated, I think, um, with quite a harsh and strong judgment because he was English, an English talent. And I think that's what happens to English managers. I think we give them opportunities, but maybe then expect more of them because they're English. Um, uh, but then there's another element, and I know you talked to him about race, Hugh, and I, I think there's the element of unconscious bias, which probably is, is, is certainly what affects opportunities for black managers. But I think it might also affect, in a different way, the judgment of English managers, because we're not used to seeing English managers being successful. Let's be honest, you know, and no English manager's ever won the Premier League. The last English manager to win the championship was Howard Wilkinson in 92. Then you go back to Howard Kendall. So there isn't a template of English managers taking that final step. And that's probably something that Frank's having to battle against as well, which is, which is as I say, our unconscious bias of what does a, what does a successful football manager look like? And we've got a picture which it used to be the Scottish managers, let's face it, but now we've got this picture of a of a Guardiola or a Jurgen Klopp in our heads. So I think there's a lot there's a lot there, um, and I think Frank's just going to have to 
kind of, I agree with Tom. There's probably no point wasting time worrying about it. He's got his opportunity. He's going to be judged harshly. He just needs to sort of get on with it. And I don't really know what purpose it serves other than a bit of a woe is me talking about it. <laughs> I, I, it's so weird. I see it completely differently. I see it completely differently because I think Frank Lampard is maybe treated better because of who he is. Bear with me on this. For example, when's the talk of Frank Lampard being replaced going to start? Now, that seems a ridiculous comment right now. But if he was another manager from another country, I think it already would have started at Chelsea in particular because we've seen great Champions League title-winning managers there, FA Cup-winning managers there, who, despite the fact that they were winning 15 and 16 games in a row and they had fantastic teams, we were still talking about whether they were going to make it through a two-season barrier at Chelsea. And there doesn't really seem to be that talk with Frank Lampard, you know, is he going to be there or not next season? I think that would have already happened with a foreign manager, given the issues that Frank Lampard has had, particularly with the defence and the goalkeeper. Um, even the ones winning trophies at Chelsea have had their, not just had their time at Chelsea question, but they've lost their jobs. And for me, I don't know what it would take for Frank Lampard to keep his job, but I imagine if he was an Italian right now with the money that he spent, if he doesn't surpass what he did last season, he wouldn't be getting a new deal at Chelsea because that is not what they've done over the last 15, 16 years. Am I wrong, Johnny? No, you're right. I mean, mean, that's the other factor here that any Chelsea manager has to live on a knife edge because he works for Roman Abramovich and Frank is in the same position as Antonio Conte was or Carlo Ancelotti was um, where you just don't get much time and you don't, it's a very sort of harsh spotlight. And yeah, probably the fact that he's, he is one of our own from a media point of view might just insulate him slightly from, from um, those decisions because the Chelsea know there'd be, a huge backlash. I'm not, as I say, I think, I think what he, I'm trying to guess, I'm trying to get inside his head. I think he's probably talking about us as a media. And I think he's probably annoyed at uh, the fact he's finished fourth in his first season, having inherited a bit of a mess. He's got a new uh, collection of players that he's trying to get into some kind of workable system and pattern. And, And within two games of the season, we're all saying this is, this is a mess. And, I'm just, you know, Frank's worked in our media. So I think I, I, I took it as a message maybe to, to us more than anything else to look, just lay off and don't assume just because I'm an English, ex-England, international English midfielder that I, I don't have the tactical brain of others. But I, I come back to the fact that until we see English managers succeeding in the same way as Jurgen Klopp and, and so on, then there might always be, a, is, is it an inferiority complex? I don't know. But, but you know, there's no view of the English manager as the great tactician yet because nobody's gone and quite done it. I think the, the interesting thing as well, going back to your original question, Hugh, is a kind of look at Ralph Hasenhutl and Chris Wilder in the Premier League. I mean, I, I liked Hasenhutl as soon as he came in and it was obviously the last weekend was the anniversary of the 9-0 and we see what he's done um, since then and he's seen as this brilliant tactician and there's almost this path that seems inevitable of him rising through the Premier League. You don't hear, even though Chris Wilder got lauded for what he did last year and rightly so, you don't hear him being linked to the bigger jobs and I don't 
quite know why that is, whether it's because it's a it's a pat on the back for saying well done. But again, it's the ta- tactical nous, whether you have got the tactical nous. And, 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 and maybe if that is Frank's message, it's, it's the right one. I sometimes think if Chris Wilder wore a Hugo Boss suit, you know, got his hair cut <laughs> at Tony and Guy, that there might be a different opinion of him and he might be being linked with all of those jobs. Um, the same true with, I guess, Eddie Howe or the likes of Sean Dyche, for example. Um, listen, we've got to move on. We were talking about Chelsea, of course. They spent a lot of money this year. What they really want is a bargain. So I'm sure they're not going to miss out on our flash sale. Uh, You can subscribe to the Times, the Sunday Times. You can get 50% off for six months. The sale ends on Friday, the 30th of October at 5 p.m. Go online, search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. Roman, save yourself a couple of quid. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Now, we on the game want to keep you and we want to keep ourselves, I guess, right up to date with a potential rescue plan in football. We've been following it from the start of the season, of course, because it affects so many of our clubs. Well, this week, the EFL chairman, Rick Parry, has sent a letter to the culture secretary. He has claimed that his clubs are being ignored by the government or worse, being victimized. Well, the government wants the Premier League to find a bailout for football. But Parry says the EFL needs at least £400 million to survive. Theatres and art venues can open at the moment, and they have been given a £1.5 billion aid package. And that has left Parry feeling like football has been left by the wayside, I think. Jonathan, do you agree with Rick Parry's words that it is deeply unfair? I think as far as government treatment goes, absolutely, um, because... Uh, football is the only industry as far as I can see that's been left to to fend for itself in this way Um, the fact that you can go and watch a Premier League football match in a a cinema in an indoor uh, environment um, with lots of other people um, in close proximity but not in a distant stand seems seems absolutely mental so I think football's been treated differently from a um, regulatory point of view in, in terms of COVID, but also from the financial point of view, because as Steve Paris wrote in, in, in our pages not long ago, um, you know, none of, n- nobody's asking um, supermarkets to bail out shops. No one's, no one's asking other industries to, 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 to bail out the, the sort of smaller parts of, 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 of their business. Um, but football has, and football's been treated differently to other sports. There's much more on on offer for for, for rugby, for example, um, for um, you know for for live entertainment, for arts. Um, I, I think this comes down to that horrible word optics, and the government 
uh, I've made a calculation that the public are so angry about the amount of money that footballers are paid or football clubs spend on transfers that they cannot be seen to be helping football because there will be a backlash. And to be quite honest, when you look at what what the, 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 the reader comments we get after articles of this ilk, the government may well have their focus grouping right. Um, people are still angry about the money in football. Um, but that shouldn't stop uh, the government trying to, or, or, or us as a society, let's say, trying to save what's really important here, which I think are, are the sort of the, the, the football clubs that are the heart of communities. Um, small, and we've talked about it a lot with Gregor and so on, and, and the experiences he had in the lower leagues. But that's that's what's that's what's at risk here, and I think those EFL clubs are at risk because of the anger towards football at a top end. And, and money, and that's 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 where we are. The court in, in in the middle. Has Rick Parry helped himself by chasing Project Big Picture? I'm not sure. Has he helped the cause? I'm not sure because it comes across now, perhaps that you know, two weeks after his attempt to jump in with the Big Six failed, he's now back to asking government for money. And I think there's a mixed messaging there, and and maybe that's where his gamble of going with Big Picture might backfire but we can talk about all we like the government can say all they like football's got to bail out itself the fact is it's not happening at the moment because of the distrust between the premier league and and the clubs in the efl um so something you, you, this that, that, that's that, that that's why they're back to asking for government you know the government can't order the premier league clubs to to help um and if if, not, if they don't help, then it is a fact clubs are going to go out of business. Tom, what do you think? I, I look around, I see at clubs in the EFL then stop signing players this summer. Football is continuing whatever money they get from TV, although it's not huge. And of course, it won't subsidise the rest of their business, particularly fans uh, through the gates. There is some money in football at the moment, clearly. Um, I see all of that. And I wonder, look, the likes of the hospitality industry, ravaged you know they're not getting the support that they probably need from the government whether it's it's so unlikely that football is going to come together that idea of a family i think is pretty much shot to pieces and so they will have to go all out i think to ask the government so it's almost right that rick parry is is saying this but having continued to sign players and having turned down the offer of money uh, from the premier league however small it was before i think it would have done something for them where do they stand now asking for a bailout really yeah it 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 doesn't it doesn't look good and johnny's spot on with the idea of sort of the mixed mixed messaging um the other thing i sort of found interesting uh, from parry's letter was was the tone of it and the 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 way, the places that he picked out i mean he he mentioned rochdale grimsby mansfield carlisle as as clubs northern towns and they were contrasted to glenbourne and the royal ballet in london and and parry used this word unfair and and it kind of taps into that the class divide and this north south divide in the country um and i think that was what he was aiming at at, at doing um you know bringing football on on onto his side at a time when it's hugely divided um i think on 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 clubs spending money I actually think we've seen a, a drop in that. They are are spending money, and it will. 
it will look strange to people outside of football who characterise footballers and football as an entity in very cliched ways that their footballers are paid loads of money and football clubs spend uh, with without thinking. Um, but you know, Reading um, top of the table. Reading spent a net of two million pounds this year. I think only nine of the twenty-four Championship clubs spent more than they made in in transfers this year. But it still just doesn't look great to be asking to have your hand out um, while still spending a million pounds. Um, and I think the thing is, you see teams lower down the pyramid who had to do business where you had the likes of David Dunn at, at Barrow who went in there with 10 players at the beginning of this year. So they had to do some form of business to be able to, to, to be involved in, in any way possible. Um, I think the issue is, is like Johnny said, how you, how it's seen from outside the Premier League spending more than a billion pounds this year and if, if you're not involved or interested in enough in football then uh, how can how can football as an entity spend that amount of money and be asking for for a bailout uh, just quickly before we move on I think we'll continue to talk about this throughout the season I'm sure until there is a bailout do you expect it to come anytime soon um, DCMS says football can support itself but clearly it doesn't seem interested in doing that Johnny no, I, I I feel we're at just an impasse now. And, you know, the other thing that Big Picture did was it almost it almost involved the clubs putting, the Premier League putting money on the table, you know, saying that there is £250 million if you sign up to this, which again gives the government the opportunity to say, well, you know, you've admitted you've got money to spare. Um, so you what you know what why why are you asking us for anything? I I just think they're caught in a horrible impasse. And the other thing that's coming, of course, is that the, the PFA are putting pressure on players not to sign up to wage caps. Um, so this the 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 the, the, the clubs are going to face problems um, in in terms of imposing those wage caps and cost controls. And if they are going to get a bailout for it to have any chance of happening. I think the Premier League clubs will stipulate that there is some kind of um, financial controls imposed on the on 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 the AFL clubs. So it's 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 I think it's even messier than probably a month ago. And as you say, Hugh, we'll talk about it throughout the season. We goodness knows where we're going to be come come the middle of winter if this is still the case. It just strikes me that maybe it's going to take a big club and, and clubs up and down the country getting closer and closer and closer to that final day. And a, a bit like we've seen with Marcus Rashford, you know, that big outcry, that big public outcry for the government to suddenly turn around and do something. What is ang What angers me is that we have to wait until that final point and clubs and, and jobs have to be put in jeopardy before there's a reaction. And look, I know football, a lot of people feel football is not the most important thing uh, in the country right now, but it is a huge part of our economy, you know, and aside from the fact that we all love the game, it is it is massively important in terms of uh, how the money goes around 
our communities. Um, look, let's focus on things on the pitch. Let's refocus, I think, and look ahead to the big game uh, in the Premier League this weekend. You know, the old rivalry, I guess. Manchester United against Arsenal, clearly not going to be competing for the title this year, as crazy as it is. I still don't think either will. But still an intriguing contest at Old Trafford on Sunday afternoon. Mikel Arteta going up against Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. We'll focus, I think, on Arsenal for this. I think, Jonathan, it's it's a couple of teams that might sit deep. A bit like we saw Manchester United against Chelsea. Why do I get the feeling going into this that both sides will be happy with a point I don't think it'll be as boring, but but there's a potential, isn't there? Oh, I think yeah, I think there's a big potential for this to be cagey, cagey, just like that, just like that Chelsea game. It reflects how I felt. I felt I was at the Chelsea United game, and I felt it was a story of two managers who felt they couldn't afford to lose, and the, there's there's such a precarious uh, job that 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 um, Arteta, Solskjaer, Lampard, or I think they're all almost in the same kind of bracket at the moment, are doing. And that's why I expect a similarity here. We were quite positive. You know, there was a lot of good mood music around Arsenal until they lost to Leicester. And just like United and just like Chelsea, they're in a situation where one bad result can throw everyone into doubt. And I, I kind of feel that they will, um, Arteta's, back in the position of having a bit of convincing to do he's got terrible defensive problems because of injuries uh, and his like Solskjaer his best successes have come from sitting deep and going for um, long counter attacks and I think that you will have two teams trying to play in a fairly similar style um, whether that <clears throat> I think I think the bigger opportunities there for United because of those Arsenal defensive op- um, problems and because of what we talked about earlier the, the potency of Rashford and, and um, perhaps having just found a system. So, you know, United, I think, have got more of an opportunity to win this one than Arsenal. Tom, is it the sort of game you look forward to? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I yeah. Clearly from the... Yeah. Um, no, I, I still am, but I think I, I think it's the same, um, same as last week in that it's a, it's a game... That will be very will be very cautious, um, and I think moods change so quickly, don't they? In the, the beginning of this week, you still you still weren't sure how United would have approached this, and then suddenly, having beaten PSG and Leipzig in a week, they they go into it on a high, um, full of form, and and I I felt this is the first time probably Arteta's felt proper pressure um during his time as Arsenal manager and this 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 season has seen a period of transition for him where where he came in as as Johnny said where he when he came in there was a real comfort of sitting back and trying to hit teams on the counter attack and 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 I think we'll we'll probably see a re- reverting back to that uh, this weekend because it worked so well for them, but they've kind of tried to adjust from the three at the back to a, a four-three-three, and they've lacked that bit of creativity in in midfield. Um, and in on, on, on the backdrop of that, you've got Meza Ozil sort of um, providing a, a, a commentary, an online commentary to most <laughs> games, which which is 
providing a bit of division as well. Um, and when you've got someone like that who is a creative player in a team that's lacking creativity, I think I think Arsenal wanted they wanted Party, but they also wanted the the, the lad from Leon, and and I think they missed him with the creativity. Awesome, well, yeah, Johnny. Yeah, no, I mean, one thing that strikes me with Arsenal is is I think they need to get a lot more out of Lacazette. Um, he is a player that you know, like he, he looks on the brink of being such a good player and he's looked that way for the last 10 years. Um, but he just, he, he just doesn't quite have the productivity for me. And, and, and Arteta is now talking about maybe putting a Bamiyang back in the middle, which might solve the number nine problem, but then maybe you get the best out of a Bamiyang. Um, I think he's been held back a little bit by, um, an over-reliance on, on Oba as it were, because Lacazette's not quite coming up with the goals. Um, and there aren't quite enough goals elsewhere on the pitch. They've got some good players, but um, none of them are you know, not necessarily scoring players. I'm thinking about people like like Ceballos, for example. Um, so there's a bit of an imbalance there for Arsenal, a bit of an over-reliance, I think, at the moment. Um, and they need, the, I think Lacazette's the one in particular, they need to step up with a few goals. I mean, when he, when he headed the ball past the, 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 the far pass, post past the open goal and then look to to blame I think Kieran Tierney for you know the, the, the cross against Leicester that just sort of seemed to sum up where he is mentally you know just missed a sitter but almost couldn't understand it himself Mikel Arteta it's interesting we talk about um, managers and perception and and how they're received um, three defeats in his last four Premier League games he's probably going to play I imagine with a back five back three however you want to look at it um, it could be similar to when they went away at Anfield as well, but they had a couple of good chances. You know, it could have gone either way, I guess. It was a tight result as well, and I think they're left with some pride. How do they approach it? How does Mikel Arteta approach it, and how will he be seen, you know, if they are beaten? I mean, he's, he's got... There's an opposite thing for him than that Solskjaer's got. He, he's done okay against smaller teams, but he, he's, he's, apart from in the FA Cup... He's not able to to get past the bigger ones at the moment. Where Solskjaer, it's been it's been the opposite. But I agree with Tom. I think I think he's going to have to go back to playing that very uh, sort of deep style, trying to draw United onto him, and then hit them hard on 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 the break. And in fairness, there is an opportunity there, as we know, because we, we've talked about United's lack of pace at the back, and one of the, that's their vulnerability. So I think I think it's a game, for example, that Fred will need to play in for United's point of view. They're going to need someone to stem counterattacks who can get about the midfield quickly, because I'm sure that's what Arteta will be looking at. Mike Dean to the referee, Tom. Should be eventful. Why are we saying it's going to be drab? Perfect man for the job, isn't he? Um, I think the 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 one thing as well, you know, uh, heading into this is that Arsenal still have a, a have a psychological problem heading into this game as well. Reg- regardless of everything else that we've just spoken about, they've got a psychological problem in that they're going to um, another a big six team, and they haven't beaten. A, a big six team away from home since January 2015, which was Man City. And I mean, um, I think Bellerin started that game. I think Ozil was on the bench um, and there was possibly one other player who was still part of that squad. I think Lampard was playing for City that day. That shows how long ago it was. And that's 27 games ago. And, and that, that kind of psychological um, hurdle that they need to get over to, to beat one of the big six teams away 
is is going to be a struggle for them and it just goes against them as well. If Manchester United win again, again, I, I don't know, I can't believe I'm saying this after the last few weeks of, of the podcast, uh, this terrible run that I build them as having, you know, it's going to be make or break for Solskjaer. They, they're cruising through at the moment. Do you think there will be huge stories, huge front pages once again on Monday if, if Solskjaer wins? I think there'll be huge stories either way, won't there? You're going to write it, Johnny, I can tell by the look of your face. Oh, You're going to make sure there are. But it must be time for a new contract. Come on, I mean, you know, get him at the <laughs> wheel for a bit longer. How, how are you feeling about him? You? you know what? The funny thing is, I've had lots of conversations in several different groups around, um, you know, Manchester United. And, you know, in one group, I said, look, I've seen it all before. We've been great for a period. We've been bad for a period especially against the harder teams. Man United have played well. You know, I, I still, as I've said previously, have not forgotten Palace and Brighton from earlier on this season. Um, and I, there is a part of me that believes that you can't drop if you're not necessarily a fan, but certainly if you work in the hierarchy of a club like Manchester United, you can never drop the feeling that the very highest heights are what you should be aiming for. And anything less is good or very good but not great and um and so i can never you can never really run away with even a 5-0 win over leipzig until it's something that as i said today to one mate i said you look for good results then you look for consistently good results and then you look for the the icing on the cake or the cherry on the top which is to get the best out of your absolutely best players so you would want then if manchester united are winning consistently the likes of Paul Pogba to start performing like the great players we expect them to be, or you expect him to turn Mason Greenwood or Marcus Rashford into the next great player. And so it's not just about results after you start winning consistently. You might look at style of football, or for me, I think it's more important to get the very best out of the players that you have. In terms of the RB Leipzig result, it was 1-0 up until 74 minutes. The bench made a huge difference, and it was a very high-quality Bench for Manchester United. Five subs makes a difference as well. Even the win over Paris Saint-Germain, they were massively depleted. There was a ball draw against Chelsea. Um, It's good. It's good for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer in particular. Whether people should sit back and say, this is what you expect from Manchester United or not, I don't know. No, I just want to be in Frank Lampard's camp. I'll absolutely slaughter Ole so he feels better. How about that? Now, Hugh, I think I think that's fair. We've talked about this, but the point is that that United have got to aim for the very best. You're, you're quite right. United have got to aim for winning titles, as do Arsenal, um, as do Chelsea. That's the, that's the game, and I think there's three managers there where we've seen really good things from them, and then we've seen periods where they haven't looked up to it, and that's that that's 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 just the fact of where we are. And one of the big issues they've got is they're trying to catch up with someone like Jurgen Klopp, who's just been so consistent and achieved so highly. And, and you know, Guardiola until the, the last 18 months, it's just a high bar to, to, to get to. And like I said last week, Solskjaer, big fan, of course I am, but of course he's got to end this season having got much closer to that top top level than 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 you know another season let's say of 10 good games 10 bad games you know of course there has to be a, a move on from that as there has to be at Arsenal as there has to be at Chelsea and it's it's kind of quite a hard time to analyze these guys as managers partly as I say because Klopp and Guardiola are so good as well because what they're battling against is and and, and you know you can throw Josie in 
you've got you've got three young managers trying to battle against three of the the greatest managers in in modern history. You know, you've got like it's, it's Guardiola, Klopp, and Mourinho. It's almost like Nadal, Djokovic, and and, and Federer. And you've got three younger guys who you know you got Dominic Team and and Zverev, whatever he's called. And and so I'm not a tennis fan, but do, do you know what I mean? It's it's hard for these guys, and it's hard to even judge them because you're judging them against such a a high high level. And, and I think I, I know that's where you are with Solskjaer. It's fine. Listen, I, I, I'm, I'm happy to judge just about anyone in society, frankly. That's the sort of guy I am. Oli Gunnar Solskjaer <laughs> is not exempt. Uh, listen, gentlemen, it's been a great chat. And look, there's lots to look forward to. We'll be talking, I'm sure, about Manchester United and Arsenal's result on Monday. But my thanks to Henry Winter, who we spoke to a little bit earlier on, Tom Roddy and Jonathan Northcroft. Thank you for being with us once again. We'll be back on Monday, of course, with the game podcast. But a reminder, do not miss out on our flash sale. You can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times with 50% off for six months, no less. The sale ends, though, on Friday, the 30th of October at 5 p.m. So go online, search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone.